This is Jordan Rich, and you're tuned to On Mic with Jordan, where conversation is alive and well, conversations with creative, inspiring people who have something to say. Our guest today is one such woman. Her name is Deepa Purushathaman, and she's the author of a book called The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. Deepa is co-founder of Information, a company for women of color by women of color, And the book we're discussing is somewhat of a roadmap with stories of women of color who are succeeding in the business world despite some long entrenched obstacles. As Deepa says, business must evolve and women of color have the potential to lead much of that transformation. Very happy to have Deepa with me today and interested in finding out a whole bunch of things about the trailblazers, the first, the few, the only. So let's proceed now and welcome Deepa Purushathaman to join us on mic. Delightful to welcome you, Deepa. And before we get into the topic at hand, let's talk about information spelled with an N, no I at the beginning, the organization you founded. Tell me uh, about it, its background and where it is today. Yeah, so information is about a year old. I co-founded it with my you know, former coach, Ra Goddess, and um, we announced and had you know, over 1,000 women of color show up. It is focused on creating professional network. Uh, it's a professional network for what senior women of color to come together in community, and we call it a brave space, a new space, for mm-hmm. us to have conversations and to see each other and really talk about how we want to lead in this phase that it feels like we're all being called into. The book is called The First, The Few, The Only, as mentioned in the introduction, and it's a truly a scholarly look at what's going on. Can we do a little uh, overview as to the demographics, the issues that have led up to today? Um, first of all, uh, we know that in the past, women of color or women in general were kept out of the boardrooms, kept out of the corporate offices. When did that start to change in your estimation? You know, I think women have been stepping into boardrooms and offices slowly over the last, I would say, let's just say two decades. I mean, I think we're starting to see some movement in numbers, especially in the last, I would say, five, seven years. But if you look at all the research, what's happening is a lot of the, you know, interventions or programs or even the focus have really benefited white women. And so women of color continue to fall behind in a lot of the advancement numbers and even, um, you know, at the C-suite. The, the numbers are, you know, we're talking about one, onesie, twosies, not, not anything uh, to write home about. And so I think we have significant work to do in the women of color advancing space. It's always the question, is this overt or subtle or subconscious denial of certain people because of their color. What do you say to that? Yeah, I think it's all of the above. And so I think we have to, you know, be fair that companies are in different places on the journey and that, you know, based on where you are in the country and lots of other uh, items, including what industry and and things, I, I did find some trends. But I would say in general, there are things that women of color can do to really find their power and find their voice and stand up for themselves. But I also think that the thing that we've never really talked about is the structure does show up differently for us. And so I say in the book, corporate America is not a meritocracy. And I want us to talk about that. And sometimes when I say that, people are shocked and we have to pull that apart. But I think it, I think there are biases. And the way the system was structured, it was not created by us or for us. So I do think that there are some differences we need to talk about. Ideally, Deepa, shouldn't it be a meritocracy? Shouldn't we support and reward those who are the most talented, the most gifted, no matter their color, sex, whatever? I do believe that, but I think what that denies is the fact that the system doesn't work in that way. Mm-hmm. So the data shows that we tend to favor people who look like us. We tend to hire and promote them. 
Um, so a lot of what's happening in HR processes is we're advancing a lot of our white talent, because that is who's sitting in the seat, as an example, just one example. Another issue we don't talk about enough is the um, actual microaggressions and the racism that happens in the workplace. I interviewed over 500 women of color in writing the book, and I can, you know, you've seen the story after story in the book of these situations. And so if it's happening at that sort of frequency, it does undermine our confidence. It does affect us. And so those are just two examples of how the system shows up differently. So even if we are the best and the brightest, there are other things happening that that actually do affect us that we need to talk about. Well, you're here with me now, and not only are you the author, but you've also experienced this because you're a human being (laughs) with certain characteristics. So what happened in your experiences, just share a nugget or two, that would would illustrate the microaggression (laughs) you're talking about, that kind of thing? Yeah, I'm going to share the one that I opened the book with because I just find it so powerful. So I was a partner at Deloitte. I was a partner in a large firm. I was our first Indian female partner. So a lot of the book is, you know, based on some of the questions I was asking my own, you know, self as I was rising. And I tell a story in the book where I sat down with a a good friend of mine, someone I knew from grad school, and we were toasting. We were celebrating our, our, both of our promotions. He had made partner in his law firm at the same time I made partner at Deloitte. And as we were talking about the challenges in front of us, I said to him, I'm really worried and stressed about what comes next. And he cut me off mid-sentence, and he said, you know, I don't even know what you're talking about. You're a twofer. You are a woman and a woman of color. You check so many boxes. You're not going to have to work hard. But I, as a white man, I'm going to have to really work hard for everything that comes next. And I share that story, and I start with it because, one, I was shocked. I was caught flat-footed. I didn't know what to say. No idea he was thinking or feeling that way. And secondly, it's a good friend of mine who knew how hard I worked to get to that seat. And for him to say that, I was really confused. If he thought that, what does everyone else think? So I think it's an example of the things that are said to us. And he didn't mean it maliciously, but the impact it had on me for months and months to come was profound. I think we don't understand that. Well, it's interesting uh, thinking about um, news and culture and things that we grow up with. When affirmative action, this is, you know, several decades ago, became discussed and then debated and then controversial for various reasons. I think that stuck even with the the younger generation. It sort of bled into that. And uh, one of the things that I take away from the work and I read your book, one of the things I take away is that we're not – we're not talking about people who are needing a leg up because they don't have the skills. These are people who are damn good. Women of color, just happen to be women of color who know what they do and they can outdo anybody. So yeah. what do you think about that drip effect of the the long and, – and quite frankly, a lot of people believe that affirmative action in some cases went too far. But is that yeah. likely to be a leftover, a holdover case of – of impact? Yeah, I think it's a great point. I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll share my own story. I have struggled with programs that, you know, uh, separated me out and gave me extra attention because I did feel like, why do I need that? Or what is that, what is that doing for me? And I had a lot of thoughts around it. Mm. My own, my own thinking. So it has evolved on this whole topic, just as I've done the research, because I've seen case after case after case. And I'm talking about the best of the best, the best, right? I interviewed majority of the women I interviewed were VP level and above. So to get to that level of corporate America, these women had to be exceptional. And so we're not talking about, you know, we're, we're not talking about women who are not superstars to start with. 
but the challenges that they face are different. So I guess I've, I've evolved my own thinking, which says I'm not so worried how we get to the seat, but even when we get to the seat, I want to make sure the space that we have allows us to show up differently, be in full voice, talk about the things that need to change. Because it's not just about getting there, it's about actually making change and making it better mm. for those of us that come up behind us. So, you know, I, I guess I don't feel as strongly or as, it's not as, you know, yes or no to me. as it, if, if you would ask me that question 10 years ago, I, I had a very different answer. But it's, it's very, very interesting because a lot of the book deals with what women are doing while in these positions after achieving yes. this. And yes. one would think on the outside looking in, oh, well, they've <clears throat> reached the high level of corporate power or whatever or government. Uh, all should be taken care of now. Life's easy. Go yes. for it. What did yeah. you find? I know it's a very general question, but what did you find is consistently among these women, yeah. the, the stressors, if you will, on them once yeah. achieving their success? So one, they're suffering. And I think that's the part that we don't understand. You know, I think we look at trailblazers and we say, you know, we should uphold them as these examples of, of getting there. And we don't look at kind of the, the shadow side of trailblazing, how hard it is and the impact. So two out of three women I interviewed was sick. And I mean with uh, not clear uh, diagnosable illnesses like a cancer, but things that were mysterious illnesses, the skin mm. rashes, hives, headaches, fertility issues. I have a long list in the book. And almost every single woman had this. As I've talked to more doctors and psychologists and others, it comes from stress. It comes from not being seen and heard in organizations. It comes from the extra work. So most of the women of color I interviewed do what I, what I call a job in the job. So all these extra roles that they're asked to do around culture building or mentoring others because there's so few of us. There's the microaggressions and the, you know, having to have your armor up to navigate spaces where you're constantly being questioned if you belong and your credentials are being questioned. And there's also, I think, just the sense of responsibility that all eyes are on you, that you have to be perfect because you're carrying everybody else that comes after you. That, that seems very different when I talk to some of my white colleagues. That's interesting, the point you made about having to be the role model and help others coming up the line. I mean, it's not in the job description, and yet Correct. that's what you end up doing. I'll, I'll use a totally innocuous example. I'm not a tall fellow. Uh, you know, Tom Cruise and I share something in common. So if <laughs> I were the shortest guy in the company, that would be, well, every uh, once in a while, we're going to lean on you, Mr. Rich, because you're shorter and, you know, you understand and I might be a little too busy to do that. Yeah, <laughs> anyway, exactly. I, I see what I see. No, what no, it's a perfect, I, I love that example. I mean, so some of the women I met, just to be super clear, because they are such an only, are literally mentoring two and 300 women, whereas, you know, in the same companies, the men were, you know, mentoring still, you know, half a dozen or a dozen. It's still significant, but we're talking about hundreds because there's no one else that looks like them, right? No one else that can do that. Another woman of color in the Midwest told me one of the most striking stories in the book. She said she's the only black woman. She knew she was going to be the only black woman in her department. But when she got to the company, she realized she's the only black woman in her company. And over the last few years, she's realized she's probably one of the only black people in her community, right, in the city. Mm -hmm. And so she shared with me, and she was crying as she said this, she feels the weight of representing all black people to her white colleagues who she believes have never met anyone before. So not only she's an accountant, let me be clear. So she's not only doing her accounting job, hmm. but she feels like she's got to make sure what she talks about, what she wears, how she talks, what she eats is all what she thinks would make all black people, you know, appear um, proper or appear in the way that she wants to present them to her white colleagues. 
can you imagine the weight of that? She just, she didn't even understand the depth of what that was doing to her as we talked. It's just, that's not what she was hired to do. She's not the representative of the race. And yet that's a job she took on or a job in the job that she thought was important um, that she carried. Um, there's a psychological construct that's in vogue these days, but I think it really makes sense to talk about it. Imposter syndrome. Yes. And uh, it, it, it's it, – I'll have you define it as you see it and also describe for us where the imposter sy- syndrome fits in today as women of color assume more roles and, and are dealing with the struggles. Where, what, what is yeah. your take on that? I see imposter syndrome as this challenge that many – I think, by the way, many women face it, but it's this, this challenge of – feeling like you don't know things. And as a result, you focus on almost what you don't know versus what you do know. And it shows up in a lot of ways. So um, for me, it used to show up in the workplace of I used to feel like I'm not an expert in certain spaces. And I would always have to lead with, well, I'm not an expert when I think some of my uh, male colleagues would just, you know, maybe lean into it or take it to you make it, which was much harder for me because I was never taught that. And I think the difference for women of color is when you don't see yourself, and I want to be really clear about this. I never, I'm an Indian woman. My parents came here in the, in the 60s. I was born here, but I never saw myself on television. My teachers never looked like me. There was never anyone around me. Other, you know, I was one of four students of color in my 500-person school when I was growing up. I never saw myself. And so when you don't see yourself, you don't always know it's possible. And so I think I've navigated a lot of spaces wondering if I belong. And this is true of a lot of women of color. We are taught these messages that we're not leaders because we don't see ourselves in television or demonstrated in that way. So you end up with this kind of, I don't want to call it self-confidence because I don't think it's coming from the self. I think it's coming from external messages. But this feeling of I'm overcompensating or I'm missing something or I really don't know runs really deep. And we have to course correct. We have to over effort to kind of work around the fact that that's really ingrained in how we grew up in the messages we heard. We're talking with the author of The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. And corporate America, I believe, even though it's parallel to the public sector, is a different animal because you're judged often, and rightfully so, by your production, by what you achieve, by the bottom line. I'd just like to get your take. As we record this, the hearings are ongoing for the latest Supreme yeah. Court justice. The question is, when any president or any leader outwardly suggests that the pick will be the best possible pick, but it has to be, in this case, an African-American woman, it just seems to a lot of people, even supporters, that mm-hmm. the pressure's on her, quite frankly, to live up right. to something that might be almost impossible. Yeah, you know, I, uh, I, I tried to watch as much as I could this week because I feel like in some ways, um, what we saw this week was a, a complete unfolding chapter by chapter of my book, right? Um, she is sitting in front of a pretty white panel, or, or, or let's just say even a panel that doesn't look like her. It doesn't necessarily need to be white, but a panel that doesn't look like her. She's being asked questions. One, she's having to force a smile during all these uncomfortable and in some cases inappropriate questions, which I find a lot of women of color I interviewed go through. So let me give you an example. Many of them will be asked. I'm often asked, where did you learn how to speak English? Or, you know, how are you so articulate? Well, I was born here, right? It's, it's fascinating that people are comfortable asking me that upon meeting me. Um, and so you saw that play out. You saw her credentials questioned, and I, I don't know if you saw, Jordan, the, the 
there was a tile going around social media of the yellow boxes where she had so many qualifications in comparison to her predecessors and the sense that we have to be overqualified. The women of color I interviewed were so overqualified and so ready because they had to be. Um, and yes, there's still a question. So even this week I interviewed a woman and she was sharing with me that she was up for a, a program and the program asked her to prove her PhD and provide her thesis, where they did not ask that of the white candidates. And so she didn't understand why she had to provide that. So that sense of having to prove yeah. your credentials, even when you've done more. Um, and then I think the biggest part of what I what I worry about, but I'm also excited for, is we are going to look at Justice, you know, I'm going to call her Justice Brown, but she's a Justice Brown for everything, like that job and the job idea. The idea that we're going to look at her not only for how she votes and what she says, but she's going to represent all black people again. She's going to represent, you know, all women of color. We're going to look at what she says, how she dresses, all these things that we don't look at for her peers that makes her job so much bigger than the job she's being confirmed into. So, yeah, I, I, I'm, I, I want to make sure she's got support. I hope she takes care of herself and that she feels powerful when she is in that powerful seat because we're going to expect a lot of her and more than we've ever expected of any other justice, I believe. Well, it, exactly. And, and you're talking about the first, the few. I mean, you can go back to Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman uh, back in the 80s. And I would even like to go back even further. Barbara Jordan, who was the first presidential candidate, Granted, she didn't get to the uh, the final nomination process. The first presidential candidate, I think, in 1972, running on the Democratic uh, platform, a black woman, strong, courageous characters. But I think yeah. the point you're making, uh, Deepa, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that even though we have had the uh, the pioneers, it doesn't mean that it's as easy as it might appear. No. No, and I think for me, like what I really want to jump up and down about this week as I watch on television is that. That is the that is the example. I have five hundred examples of that in my book of what what we saw play out on television is happening every single day in almost every single workplace. And I am really struggling with the message of like, well, she's the best and she's gonna have to deal with that. Part of what I want us to change is no, she shouldn't have to deal with that. She shouldn't have to do all these extra jobs. How do we change workplaces so that's not expected of us versus us having to tolerate it? I think that's the shift I want to see. Well, let's do this. Let's jump right into uh, what people in this realm can do about it and in in terms of their own mindset and then practical steps. So pick any example you'd like of a success story and why it is so and share it with us, if you would. Yeah, so one of the things that I talk about in the book is quite a, like, you know, what, what should women of color do when they face a racist incident or a microaggression? And I think part of what, and, and I, I like this example because I think it also applies to allies, who, by the way, I call co-conspirators because I don't want allies to just be watching or bystanding. I want, I want allies to do the work, too, is I think we don't talk enough about race or talk about how race is going to show up, whether it's at the workplace or other, in other um, situations. And so we're not prepared. So in the book, I talk about for women of color, like have your statements practiced because I guarantee racism is going to happen in the workplace or someone's going to say something insensitive. So when someone does say something, you're allowed to say, I'd like to stop the meeting or can we talk about what was just said or what was just said really hurt me. I need to unpack it. But what I'm also encouraging us to do as allies, co-conspirators, is also practice what you're going to say. So if you see something or someone does something that is racist or inappropriate, it's okay for you to say, okay, I need to stop the meeting. That that didn't feel right to me. Or can we see how everyone is feeling, you know, with what was just said? Or after the meeting, I really want to talk about that. 
again, we are not taught to what to do when incidents happen. And so I think all of us as a society are caught flat-footed. And why can't we be more prepared? Because I do believe we're in a moment, by the way, Jordan. I don't, I don't think this is an awful moment. And I want to believe people have good intent. And I think we're, you know, I have so many uh, leaders reaching out to me, not women of color, more leaders and more white leaders, more white journalists are reaching out to me than women of color at the moment saying that they want to understand and they want to do better, but they don't necessarily know how and don't really understand what the situation is like. And so I feel like this is part of having that discussion so that we can all lean into what needs to change. This this is a much more um, calm and legitimate and adult way to approach it. I think when one of the problems, and I'm sure you agree at some point, is this insane uh, wokeism over uh, simple phrases that are taken out of context. You know, most of it played out on Twitter feeds and so forth, yeah. but that has a tendency to muddy the waters. I did want to yeah. ask you, though, about um, the females in authority, white females in authority, yep. and yep. whether or not they also need to learn as white men need to learn these issues. Yeah. You know, Jordan, this is the biggest um, This is the biggest challenge in the book or when I have conversations. I've probably spoken to 100 <laughs> companies now. And um, I am, so I'm just going to be open. I'll, I'll share it. Like, I'm surprised the white male leaders are very open, have come to me over and over again saying this book is so helpful. I had no idea. I kind of knew there was something, but I've never had space to talk about it, right? So really positive. Some of the white women are struggling because I think they struggle, and I think it's a fair struggle. Like, a lot of them are, I mean, we haven't made our progress on white women yet, right? We're still trying to crack the, you know, the glass ceiling in a lot of places, and I think the structure of corporate America and the structure of a lot of companies, we've now are saying that there, there are set seats. Like there's this, there's almost like this, what I call a delusion in the book, this idea that, you know, there's 12 seats at the table and maybe one or two are for a woman and maybe one is for a woman of color. This idea that they're designated sets us up in the situation where we're really competitive with each other. And so I think we have to get to a new place of conversation. I, you know, when I do my speeches and my talks, I do have sometimes white women say, but it's just as bad for us. And I think that we need to unpack a little bit more. Yes, I'm not saying it's perfect for white women, but I also want us to understand there are extra layers for women of color. And just because I'm saying that, it doesn't diminish the experience of white women or take away or suggest that their situation is perfect or easy. I'm not saying that at all. And so I think mm-hmm. that's the conversation we need to have. Not sure this is something you want to tackle or, or have sure. uh, time to, but the Me Too movement, I'll put that in quotes, yeah. the Me Too experience, the idea that this is going on and uh, finally people are waking up to this nonsense. Um, how did it impact women of color in, in the corporate world any differently if it did? Yeah, you know, I, I've asked that question. I would say to you, I feel like for women of color, it's a little bit harder because we have been told over and over again the system won't support us in reporting our truth, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of HR processes, even now I work with companies, part of the disconnect is that um, it's still really difficult to report racism. Like the system doesn't necessarily allow for that, right? It protects the company. And so I think we've made progress on Me Too. I think you're seeing more people speak up. I do think culture has changed. Your practices have changed. How people interact with each other has changed as a result of Me Too. I, I want to see that sort of movement happen around racism in the workplace. And I still feel like we're early on that. We haven't had that momentum because I think there's it's still so hard to talk about and we're just beginning to put words around it. It seems, yeah, no, it seems to me that, uh, again, you're, you're a very um, rational and thoughtful person who's done a lot of research. 
as opposed to somebody who's just saying uh, anyone who has made the mistake has to be purged. I think there's room to, to grow and, and fix yeah. these things internally and, and not only make the lives of people, women with co- women of color better, but the lives of everybody else around them. Uh, I agree. I mean, my work, I, I should be super clear. Yes, this book is on women of color, but my work is really talking about how I don't think workplaces are working for anybody. I think the last few years have shown us that they're not working for working moms. They're not working. You know, a, a lot of the white men of my generation and, and younger would tell you they want to you know, be home more and raise their children. They want space. And so I honestly think this is a bigger question about how work works for all people. But within that, I do think women of color have a unique experience. and We just need space to be able to talk about that versus you know, if you just work hard, it'll be okay. So having the organization uh, that you started and then putting the book together, you must have a very deep Rolodex. <laughs> you must have I contacts do. all over the place and, and some amazing people in so many different fields. I do. It's interesting, right? As a partner in a large firm, I got to meet a lot of people and I thought I had, you know, one of the most amazing calling cards because I got to sit down with very powerful people. But now I would say my Rolodex is 10x what, I, what it was when I left just because I think this work is opening a lot of doors. And I've met, you know, a few thousand senior women of color across the country, and we all want to help each other. So it's different. Yeah, yeah. the idea of including everybody. No one's left out, and no one um, should have power because of what they look like over somebody else. It's it, We're still in the teething stage i think we're still yeah. we're still moving forward uh but we're, we're moving so much far forward than we were say a decade ago or, or even a generation ago so uh your book has come along at a great time uh how can people find out more the book obviously is available everywhere about your information organization yeah i think the easiest place to go would be to my website so deepa peru d-e-e-p-a-p-u-r-u.com and um, there's information about the book, about speaking, and also about uh, information, the company, and how you can sign up and, and get more. You s- you said earlier, and I agree with you, people should never question, you know, how come you speak English so well? Mm-hmm. But the one thing you do help people with is your last name. Yeah. So let's do it. <laughs> let's do it together, okay? So it's Pershathaman? Pershathaman. Prashathaman. Very good. Yeah. I needed your help, but I, I know you told me before we went on the air. Yeah. Prashathaman. No, Prashathaman. Yeah. You know, everything can be, the world is a better place if people just apply phonetics. They can they can feel that they'll glide through a name like that and all day say Prashathaman and they'll, they'll get it. Uh, yes. <laughs> I want to thank you so much. You're a delightful lady and a Wellesley graduate, which is important to this discussion. Uh, that's just between you and me, but a Wellesley grad and a lot of other... <laughs> Great attributes. Uh, Deepa, continued success and, and good luck on the campaign. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. My thanks again to Deepa Purushathaman, the author of The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Can Redefine Power in Corporate America. And my thanks to you, listeners all over the world, for joining us here on this podcast, where every time out of the box, there's someone new and interesting to listen to. Thanks to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Chark Productions, where we produce this and many other programs. And find out more at jordanrich.com. Till next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>